Greetings and salutations. Welcome back to Life and Books and Everything. I'm Kevin DeYoung, and good to be with you again. Thanks for listening. I'm joined by Justin Taylor. Justin, hello. Hello. Our our friendly accomplice, Colin Hansen, is not with us. He is in somewhere parts unknown. I think he's administering the COVID test for Nick Saban. I think, um, yeah, I think once once he got the positive, he, he decided, let's just get some people within the state of Alabama, maybe uh, some some interns or something to ring up three negative test. So, so Colin, wherever you are, we welcome you back. But we have a special guest who we will introduce in just a moment, and I'm really excited for this conversation. want to say thank you, as always, to Crossway, our sponsor. They really do publish great books, and they care about their authors. They care about the books that they publish. They care about serving the church. I know lots of ministries say that, and I, I bet a lot of them mean it. But I know that Crossway really does, and it really guides what they do and how they think about the books that they publish. Today, we want to mention Mark Talbot has a new book called When the Stars Disappear, and it's about suffering. And Justin, I know you know Mark uh, fairly well. Uh, tell us a little bit about Mark and why he's uniquely qualified, perhaps, to write a book like this. Yeah, Mark is one of the godliest, uh, most helpful voices that I know as a Christian philosopher at Wheaton College. Uh, he he really integrates reform theology and philosophical analysis in his whole teaching and, and writing ministry. So this is actually the first of four volumes that he's doing on suffering in the Christian life. Um, it's not a major part of this volume, but Mark himself as a, a teenager fell from a 50 feet from a Tarzan-like rope and broke his neck. Um, so he uh, deals with disability in his own life, profound uh, suffering, and uh, offers hope for Christians. So here's a, a blurb from Timothy Larson, his colleague at Wheaton College. If you're a Christian who's experiencing suffering or who's weighed down by the suffering of someone you love, then this book is for you. It offers profound biblical reflections that do not dodge the hard questions or try to minimize the sometimes overpowering reality of pain and loss. Mm. So if you want to read on suffering from somebody is not just writing theoretically, but is profoundly tethered to uh, the scriptures, then I think this book might be for you. It's great. I, I wonder, Justin, here's a, a publisher question for you. People always, um, you know, seems like they're, they're always coming out with new books on parenting, on prayer, on suffering, maybe on marriage. Do you get a lot of proposals in those genre? And do you find that well, people want to write on them because people always want to read on them, or is it actually hard to sell those kind of books? I think it depends uh, on the author and on their platform in particular when something's been so well covered. Uh, but, you know, somebody's becoming a parent as we speak, right? Somebody's getting married as we yeah, speak. Right. So there's these, you know, somebody's suffering as we speak. So there are these perennial things, whereas, um, you know, sometimes books can sell even better if it's some flashpoint thing. You know, if you're writing about, the 2020 election, I mean, that could uh, explode, but it's going to be forgotten by next year other than for historical novelty purposes. So perennial topic, uh, I think when you're writing on something that everybody else is writing on, mm. um, it becomes a little bit harder. Justin, you forgot to say that there are people who are crazy busy right now who need to do just do something right now. 
Yeah, that uh, is an emerging joke, it sounds like. An emerging, ha, ha, ha. Okay, we have a special guest with us today uh, who's well-known to me, probably not to most of everyone else, but you'll be, I, I'm very confident you'll be glad to hear from him. And he's just getting to know Justin here as well. Jeff McCalvey. Jeff is a, a ruling elder at University Reformed Church, the congregation I had the privilege of serving for 13 years, and now I'm very pleased that they're served so well by my very good friend, Jason Halopoulos, who's the senior pastor there now. Jeff is with us to talk about Christianity and politics, or more specifically, being a Christian in politics. And I'm going to ask Jeff to tell a little bit of his story in just a moment, but just to know why we would invite Jeff, he's he, he, he is, uh, well, he'd be the first to say, his wife is much better than he is, especially at following Jesus. But Jeff follows Jesus, and he's a tremendous elder. I know that from firsthand experience and loves people and loves to be involved in people's lives and loves the church and is a good churchman and has spent his adult career in politics as a, a serious Christian and was, I forget the exact title, were you the legislative aide for Governor Engler? Legislative director, yeah. Legislative director. You were one of the the, the key right-hand man for Governor Ingler and now has been for many years a lobbyist, that swampiest of swamp creatures, a lobbyist. I'll ask you about that in a moment. But Jeff, so glad to have you here. Thanks for being here to talk about being a Christian in politics. So tell us about those two things. How did you become a Christian and how did you get involved in politics? Well, Kev, you've heard this story before, but uh, it uh, it goes back to that uh, wonderful wife of mine you uh, talked about. Uh, came to Michigan State University uh, and uh, was smitten by a young lady who lived on the floor above me in the dorm, began to pursue her, and uh, she said to me very plainly, I really like you, but I became a Christian last year, and I can't uh, date you because you're not a Christian. Uh, I thought I was and uh, told her that. And she said, well, it, uh, here's the phone number of of a friend of mine. If you call him and he says, I, I'm okay to date you, then I will. That turned out to be her pastor, uh, mm -hmm. uh, Kevin's predecessor, uh, Tom Stark. And that started Tom and I meeting. Uh, we, we met off and on mostly for 25 years. And sometime in the first year, I came to understand the truth of the gospel and that uh, I needed to uh, make a decision, which I did to follow Christ at that point. And when you were at Michigan State, were you studying politics? Did you think that's where you were headed? No, I was actually studying education. I was going to be a teacher and a coach, but I had always been involved in, in campaigns and politics. I think Colin talked on your last uh, podcast about uh, moving from campaigns to public policy. Well, I began in that spot and working in campaigns and loving that and uh, found my first job was in politics instead of teaching. There didn't happen to be any teaching jobs when I graduated from Michigan State. So uh, that that brought me uh, on a course. And as Colin said, I soon got tired of campaigns, but found public policy was, was a lot more fun and a lot more significant. Yeah, I can't remember what Colin said. I know I, you know, some of this that I, I, when I went to Hope College, I studied political science at first, and I got involved in uh, some campaigns. Actually, in high school, before that, I won't get into that story, and in college. And I thought real quickly, 
this is not for me. It's for somebody. And uh, hopefully it's for some good people. It was not for me. So what, uh, Jeff, I, I, I promised that I wouldn't ask, and I'm not going to ask because we don't have you on here to talk punditry or to talk partisan politics. But, you know, so I'm not going to ask you about specifics, but feel free in telling your story to, if you need to talk about people you've worked with or things that you've done that by all means. So just give us a little rundown of what you have done in politics and what you do now. And I was joking, but lobbyist is, I mean, everyone knows lobbyists are horrible people and you're a lobbyist. So, so tell us what have you done and what do lobbyists do and how can you go to sleep at night? Thank you, Kevin, for that that opening. Um, Uh As I said, I started out in campaigns. I actually took a year off of uh, Michigan State to help run a congressional campaign. Um, That that individual won. We beat a longtime incumbent. I thought that that uh, was a signal that I should go to Washington and um, make a career out of politics. My father had other ideas about finishing my bachelor's, so we did not do that, and that turned out to be a great blessing. Uh, I then went to work for a, a trade association for a few years. Uh, Carol and I got married when we were 20 uh, as college students uh, and uh, got, had to get a job right away. Then got a, a job working for a gentleman by the name of John Engler, who in Michigan was uh, the Senate Majority Leader and uh, after four years ran for governor uh, and in a massive upset became governor. As you mentioned, I was his legislative director. Uh, I did that uh, for him for about uh, seven years and then uh, began a lobby firm, uh, partially uh, to be able to prove that you could be a Christian and yeah. and, and be a lobbyist as well, uh, which uh, we started a firm and uh, part of the the ethic of our firm, our, our, our commitments that, that underlie everything else is that we don't take any clients who we think would would be offensive to anything in the gospel. So we don't represent alcohol or tobacco or gambling uh, or those sorts of interest. So what does, uh, and then I'll let Justin jump in. What, what does a lobbyist do? And I was just kidding. Cause I know that you, uh, I know your integrity, what, you know, people hear lobbyists and they think, you know, just having, you know, three martini lunches or something and money is changing hands. But as I understand it, bills and legislation would not happen without lobbyists is some something of a middleman so what what do you what are you actually doing to as a lobbyist i'm building relationships um with legislators uh key bureaucrats key staff in the governor's office and acting as an intermediary i know how to communicate with uh those folks my firm the other lobbyists in my firm we know how to communicate um and what messages need to be communicated I would argue almost everyone has a lobbyist. Um, there's some group that you belong to that is represented by a lobbyist here, whether it's in, in, you know, obviously I just lobby in Michigan, the Michigan legislature, but Michigan Farm Bureau. So if you're a farmer, you have a lobbyist. If you're pro-life, you have right to life as your lobbyist. Um, if you... Uh, um, Southern Baptists have a lobbyist. South, Southern Baptists have Michigan, a lobbyist. Not Michigan, but... Yeah, they certainly do. And lots of, of groups uh, on the that would be on the progressive side have lobbyists to the league for public policy and other things like that. So almost every group, and it's simply a way to communicate. Uh, it, I understand how the legislature works 
and I try and take the the messages that they they might be frustrated with, the experiences they're having, the statutes that are causing them trouble, and can help them figure out where they might need to go and communicate that well. One of my clients is the Salvation Army, um, which we we do at a, a very very reduced rate because I believe in the ministry. They're wonderful at serving the poor, and they run the uh, they actually oversee the entire homeless shelter program for the state of Michigan. They're terrible communicators with state government because, they're, <laughs> but they're really, really good at serving the poor. Uh, they, they run uh, alcohol and, and drug rehab programs that are marvelous, but they don't really know how to communicate. So I help them to do that. That would be one example. So what does a legislative director do? How much of that is devoted to crafting policy and how much of that is kind of the horse trading as the governor's office works with the legislature? It was, it's really the role of being the governor's lobbyist, at least it was in this administration that I was part of. But I was also involved in crafting the policy, thinking through what, what that would look like. Uh, I would say Kevin would remember, but he was probably in grade school. But there was a big issue about how schools were funded. No, I remember it very well. Yeah. Yeah. There was uh, how schools were funded. And so there was a seismic change where we completely took it away from property taxes at a local level and changed how schools were funded. Uh, but much of that was then taking what the governor wanted to do and being his lobbyist in the legislature, talking about um, what that what that would mean, try and find the key votes, understand what members would be concerned about what issues and how we would move forward. Did, Have you uh, ever been tempted to go back to Washington or to go to Washington for the first time? I, I have not. I, I get Potomac fever just when I fly there, so I know <laughs> – I know my my own pride and ego, and I know that, that Lansing is a very good place for me. So Potomac fever being you're, you're drawn to it, or you're repelled? Yeah, the, no, I'm di- I'm drawn to it. I I think the the power and the the whole atmosphere can can be intoxicating. So uh, when I was young, but as I mentioned, Carol and I got married very young. We had children very young, and so uh, that that was never really an option, anyways. Trisha and I decided to have kids very young and to have them very old. We just have them for a really long time. My it, wife's it, not old. It, and, well, and you have delightful children too. Well, I something. Must, must say, like, as I know all all nine, all, I know eight of the nine. I have not met yes. Susanna yet, but they're they're wonderful. as delightful as your grandchildren. Yeah, there you they're, go. They're sort of wired the same. I was actually at the the doctor the other day, and he was telling me about how he has two kids and. His brother doesn't have any kids and he thinks his brother's making a mistake. And he said, you know, my brother's been married for a number of years. His wife wants to have kids and he just can't do it. And I just told my brother, I said, look, you're, you're 43 now. Can you imagine having a kid now that you're 43 and you're going to be 60 when, and I'm sitting there as he's, I don't know, cracking my back or something thinking I'm 43. You're, <laughs> you don't appreciate Stop. the ages. Right? Yeah. That's right. why I'm here. Uh, uh, Jeff, I wonder, and again, you, you just speak broadly, not asking you to name any specific examples, good or bad, but, and maybe DC is different than at a state level, but I wonder over your years of seeing the sausage making, as it were, do you feel like most elected officials on either side of the aisle are there, even if you disagree with them, are basically good people trying to make a difference, even if you think they're really mistaken in their views, or do you think the whole thing looks corrupt 
rotten and you're dealing with all sorts of people that you, you, you barely can trust? That's a very good question, Kevin. And I, I can say uh, very clearly that the vast majority of people who uh, become legislators are really decent people who really care about their communities and, and want to make a difference. Uh, th that's true, whether they come from the right or the left, they have completely different ideas about what that might look like, but they're, they're very good people. And in Michigan, we have a very extreme term limit. So if you're in the house, you can only serve six years. If you're in the Senate, you can only serve eight. So we see a lot of turnover. You know, last time we, there's 110 members in the Michigan House, there were 48 new members. So 48 freshmen out of 110. And I can say 90% of them are very good people, maybe even higher than that, who who desire to do uh, right by their community um, and uh, come here for the right reasons. Do you think that's different in Washington? I, I don't know. I, the, the people I know in Congress are pretty good people, whether they're Republicans or Democrats. Uh, I, I do think there's probably something of, about when you get there for a long time um, that you may lose touch. Uh, but the, the folks I know in Congress, even the folks I know in Congress who've been there a long time from Michigan are, are still good people on both sides of the aisle who, who try and, and uh, serve their constituents well. So a question I had uh, someone ask me years ago who was thinking of going into politics, he, he didn't, but he was asking, uh, do, do you think there's a limit as a serious Bible-believing Christian who wants to have the utmost of integrity in how he respects and honors other people? Uh, is there a limit how high that person can go in elected office? That is, do you think that for a Christian to maintain his or her integrity, they just can't do some things, can't reach some places of power because it requires compromise at some level? I don't think so. I, I do believe that you can you can pursue public office with integrity. I don't think it's any different than le reaching the highest level of any profession. Um, you know, you could be in the corporate world and there are temptations to... Uh, cut corners or slander someone or do other things. Um, and, and there are those temptations, but I, I do think, and we've got examples of, we won't name names, but we've got examples of folks in Congress and other places who have, have maintained uh, their commitment to the gospel and to Christ and still uh, served well. I do believe that it seems to be a time in the culture where your religious beliefs will be called more into question and maybe even attacked by the other side when you're when you're involved in campaigns or as we've seen in some hearings when you're involved in in confirmation processes so let me ask this then we'll throw it back to justin but jeff what you've been doing this for i guess 30 years maybe more what right. what has stayed the same and what seems different the mood the way things happen the type of people involved in politics Talk to us about the continuity and the discontinuity. Uh, one of the biggest changes has come, I think, in the the folks who serve from the Democratic Party. When I first came to work in the Michigan legislature in the 1980s, about 40% of the Democrats in the House and the Senate, they were both in the majority, were pro-life. Uh, almost exclusively, they were Catholics from... Mm 
traditional Catholic areas of Michigan, like Bay City or Michigan or, or uh, Muskegon or um, or the Hamtramck area, Kevin, which you will know in the Detroit mm-hmm. area. Um, I don't believe that there is a pro-life Democrat uh, in either the House or the Senate today. Um, and, and that's been a, a significant change that on that issue, the life issue has really become much more partisan issue because of that that change that's taken place. Uh, members have gotten, gotten a lot younger. That's probably because I'm a lot <laughs> older. But I also think because Michigan has this unique term limits, uh, if you know you can only have a six-year career here, you're not going to give up. You know, If you're a chemist at Dow Chemical in Midland, you're not going to give up your career to go for six years uh, if you know it can't be a career. So we, we have a, a Speaker of the House today who's 33 years old. He was 31 when he became Speaker of the House. We have several. I know him. Yeah, you do know him, as a matter <laughs> of fact. Um, we, we have several legislators who are in their early 20s. Um, so th- there is a and I don't know if that would be true in every state or whether if you could could still make a a, a career of being a legislator, whether that that is different. But it certainly is. It's a young, much more of a in Michigan, it's a young person's game. And those who are at the end of their careers who seem to more run for the legislature. OK, so I'm following up with one question before I, I lied, before I give it to, to Justin, Justin there. So me. so uh, so you said most of the people are, are decent in trying to do their best, even if you disagree with them. Then you talked about the, the change in pro-life and pro-abortion side of things. So what obviously you're um pro-life and it's really really how many reallys can you put on there important right but you you talk often i imagine with people who are not and legislators who are not do you uh you know maybe you're not even trying to convince them but as you talk to people who you think they're you know nice folks they would be good neighbors and they don't agree on pro-life what why 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 can't they be persuaded what what are they not seeing or what aren't we helping them see on an issue that seems so clear to people like us life begins at conception every life is precious in the image of god but even if you're not a christian every human person has worth and dignity and ought to be protected it seems to be to people like us absolutely clear and absolutely essential but it's not to others what what sort of conversations do you have to try to make sense of that well i think the the bottom line kevin would be when i worked for governor engler we were trying to push through a piece of legislation that that uh we thought would limit abortion and we're having a very difficult time and i was talking to our our major our, our general counsel at that point she was a dear catholic woman uh and she said Jeff, your strategy is not going to work. You have to change hearts. And th- that really is, Kevin, the bottom line here, mm-hmm. right? We, th- this is about hearts. Um, I have some dear friends who are, are pro-abortion, uh, including one of the folks who works for me, who I am very fond of. And I have come to understand that they believe very deeply um, that uh, about a women's, woman's right to choose. And as I try and pair that back gently... Uh, it, 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 they, they don't seem to, they don't believe that a embryo, a fetus is a human mm-hmm. life. It's, it's to me inconceivable. I don't understand how you could, could hold that position. Um, but that's, 
I really do believe it. It is their hearts. Scripture would tell us they have scales in front of their eyes, right? Um, yeah. It, it it really is just a complete blind spot. Hmm. Justin? I think one of the raps on Republicans is that they know that they have to be pro-life in order to get elected, but once they are uh, seated, then they don't really have a passion for pro-life issues or, or the will to pass legislation. They just are using evangelical or conservative or Catholic voters in order to get elected. Do you think that's a fair criticism? Is there some truth to it, some not truth to it? Or how do you think through that? Justin, I don't, I don't know that I know because Michigan, there aren't many pro-life issues left in the, for the legislature to tackle. We, this has been a a pro-life majority here for a number of years and everything you can do under Roe v. Wade has really been done. Um, And they have not had trouble getting the votes for that. I think there has been a move, maybe one of the other changes that's happened, at least in Michigan, and I think probably nationally, the Republican Party, which used to be accused of being the, the party that cared more about social issues than it did, did about other policy, um, now seems to be one that cares more about, they're, they're, they're much more libertarian. They don't want to talk about social issues anymore. They want to talk about economic issues. And, and the Democrats seem now much more to be engaged mm-hmm. in social issues and want to talk about uh, LGBT, LGBTQ issues. sorry. Um, and Plus. and other issues like that. So it, there's been a, a shift, but but I think that's almost a national movement of Republicans away. They, they just don't talk about social issues oh. as much anymore. Justin, how did you, I mean, people who listen to this podcast know we, we, we talk about the things that we're interested in and the, the three of us, you and Colin are obviously interested in sports that comes up sometimes, books, that's obvious, but we all have some interest in politics. How did you get interested in politics? Why do you care about this, Justin? Yeah, I always had an interest growing up. And my brother, who's a year and a half younger than I, we would stay up at night. We were in the same room together and we would talk about uh, what our plans would be when we run for president someday. And uh, he's actually become a county supervisor and, and run for the Iowa House, although I have never had any uh political aspirations beyond the fifth grade. Uh, I did volunteer for my first campaign in middle school, uh, an Irish Catholic Democrat in Sioux City who was uh, running for office. And I sat there and and listened to ads on the radio and and tried to transcribe them in uh, different technology days back then. Uh, So I just always had an interest, always watching things and and was a Democrat and was pro-choice at that time. And, uh, as I, I came to Christ and matured in Christ, I, I shifted positions and uh, shifted the way I view politics, but it's from an early age, I think from, uh, my, my dad, who is a Democrat and, uh, still a lifelong passionate Democrat. And, uh, I, I think I inherited that in early age as probably most kids do. You you inherited being a lifelong Democrat. Do you want to leave leave <laughs> I, that out there, Justin? No, well, I did. Uh, I I inherited being a, a Democrat, and uh, you know, following the policies that he had. And I uh, remember going to see the the vice presidential debate when uh, the famous line was uttered at Dan Quayle, and uh, those sort was of that things. in Iowa that debate? No, it was in Omaha. So we drove down. An oh, hour but and you drove. Oh, and you were there yeah. in the audience. 
we were in a um, an auditorium next door to the debate hall, and then Lloyd Benson came through and was treated like a rock star. I mean, it was like the greatest vice presidential debate in history if you were a Democrat. So that was my early interest. I did not become a lifelong uh, pro-abortion proponent, but as per your your blog from a week or two ago, which is getting a lot of traction. Well, maybe we'll get into that later, Justin. Kevin, can I ask you a question? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You and I've had some discussions in the past couple of years about um, maybe this mistake that my generation made, or maybe it's not a mistake, but that, that we were fighting a culture war um, and that, that that seems to have gone away as we tried to hold off uh, gambling and, and, uh, and legislate morality, the other side would say. Um, and you seem to to think that that was that had come to an end um and that your generation and the generations underneath you and justin was moving in a different direction where how do you see that move forward uh for christian leadership who still want to have an effect on these sorts of issues it's a really good question uh let justin follow up for my answer because i i think it's a it's a major issue even within the church uh within churches that have the same theology, even within churches that may basically have the same sort of political makeup, there is a generational difference. Uh, obviously, it's, it, we're generalizing, but sort of 50s and over, baby boomers, the very youngest baby boomers and, and, and up, I think in some ways it's a sense of losing evangelical Christendom a sense of what the country was, or at least was for for white Christians, has always been a, a different story for minorities. And so, I think there's there's some of that that we're we're losing our country, and every election, therefore, is the most important election of our lifetimes. I think that sort of way of approaching things, right or wrong, is very distasteful, or maybe just doesn't even make sense for for younger generations who feel like well wh- whoever promised that it was going to be a christian country or wh- whoever promised and and this is just making my work harder or my church harder a a constant attitude of pugilism that that would be the the critique i think from younger generations with a a culture war mindset and who want to say look i'm we're we're tired of that and and white conservative Christians have been too aligned with the Republican Party. And there's fair critiques there. But as you and I have talked before, uh, so Justin and I are millennial or not millennials. We're Gen X. And then you go to millennials and now even Gen Z. Uh, they they get some things right, perhaps, in wanting to love neighbor and not wanting to be overly associated with one party, but they get some things wrong. And I think one of the things they get wrong is to think, you know what, you know what the opposite of cultural Christendom, it's not, we all just love each other and sing Kumbaya. And isn't this wonderful that we have the, the religious right out of the way, and now we can just get along with each other. That that's not the opposite. Or, you know, one time someone that I know and like had written something uh, about my age person had written about how we're too into electoral politics and these things don't really matter. And I said, I- I'll just give you one example. And at that time, as you know, I was serving on the East Lansing Public Schools yeah. Sex Education Committee. And the the law in Michigan is less a 
changed was you had to have a clergy representative on there. And the law in Michigan was that you needed to have abstinence-based sex education. I said, you know, when the legislator flip, legislature flips, that's probably going to be changed. And I said, that's just one small example that at least I have something to sort of hold on to with my kids at the time in, in public school to say, mm-hmm. this is what the law says we should have. So I think there's a naivete among younger generations who want to just wash their hands of the the filthiness of all of this political talk. And we've certainly seen, you know, some bad examples of, of Christians and pastors and church leaders who become so aligned with one party that it becomes very, that's always the danger. When you align your hopes and dreams with a party, let alone a person, you rise and fall with that party and that person. And the church needs to transcend that. I don't know, Justin, we've, we've talked about this before. How, how do you size it up? Yeah, I, I mean, I agree with your analysis, Kevin. And I think that to some degree, it's that uh, nobody likes to be a loser. And on the conservative side, you know, we've we've been promised, like, if we elect Republicans, we're going to be, we're going to have a strong military and we're going to have great foreign policy. And we've seen the kind of disasters of interventionism. Uh, we've been promised if we just get a Republican president, they will appoint a conservative Supreme Court justice and Roe v. Wade will be overturned. And, you know, decades later, it still hasn't happened. Um, nobody likes to be painted as a bigot. And we've we've lost the war in terms of the uh, or the battle in terms of LGBTQ. And then on economics, you know, if, if we kind of get someone in there who has Reaganomics as their economic policy, everything will go better. And I think a lot of people are looking around and saying, this, this isn't going as well. And also the the perception that we're just fighting for one or two issues and ignoring other aspects of life. Uh, I think all of those have been problematic for younger voters uh, who, who tend not to uh, think historically, think in the moment, you know, what does this feel like? What's the perception? Um, and then the people who tend to really be into culture war act like warriors. You know, they, they talk loudly, they, uh, they want to win at all costs. So even for those of us who feel like some of these issues are really worth fighting for and that we should not have politics and religion completely sealed in absolutely different categories, uh, sometimes we cringe at uh, those who represent that particular side, uh, not only in terms of tone, but in terms of strategy and, and how they're going about their tactics. And I think the the... The promise of politics in a good way and the the temptation of politics in a bad way is that there is a mechanism to accomplish something. So if you look and you have 320 million people and you wish that our country viewed things differently on abortion or gay marriage, you go, okay, how, how, how do we... How do we change hearts and minds? Well, we want to do that. We want to preach the gospel and we want to have institutions. That's a very long game and you may not get anywhere. You have so many things outside of your control. You'll just see, but you can see a, at least a path. Of, we could really try to do something in the next two years or four years or six years and we can get the right candidate and we can knock on the doors and we can get the right adversary. I mean, there's a path to try to make, like you said, to try to have a win. 
in a cultural environment on these social issues, at least abortions, maybe a little different, but most of the social issues feels like we're just losing. And if you can have an electoral win in the midst of so many cultural losses, then why not try for that? And, and I understand that. And I don't think it's, uh, I, I think if Christians, if every Christian today said, you know what, I wash my hands of the culture war and I don't belong to any political party and I just am walking away from all of this to maintain my witness for Christ. I don't think that makes the country better. I don't think it makes church ministry easier, but there are certainly a number of mistakes that any of us can make in maintaining political allegiances more strongly than Christian allegiances and being more dogmatic about prudential political matters than we are about the articles of the faith. And we end up with, well, it's idolatry. I I wonder, Jeff, do you think, maybe it's um, posing it as a binary when it's probably not, do you think, do you wish most Christians were more engaged and more informed on politics? Or do you do you feel like, hey, a lot of the Christians you know, you want to tell them, um, just relax and spend some time with your grandkids and find a new hobby? Uh, I, I wish they were more engaged. I think we all have an obligation to be more engaged, to understand the issues, which are far more complex than um, media would would portray it, and certainly more complex than you might find in in a social media soundbite uh, about something. There are important issues that that need to have uh, a Christian viewpoint. Legislators need to hear from uh, Christians in in their district who do care about issues and can articulate it, uh, their position and their concerns or their support. Uh, hopefully, without anger, uh, with with uh, love as the gospel would would advise that we would communicate things. So I would hope that they would um, not, that they would be more involved. I understand the temptation to just wash your hands and say, this is dirty business and this is frustrating and a pox on all their houses. Um, but but I do think it is, it is important uh, that we as Christians be involved. That doesn't mean you have to run for office, but you ought to get to know your candidates, you ought to get to know your local legislator or city council person or township trustee. Uh, it, and it, as you did, Kevin, I was I was so impressed with what you were willing to do in East Lansing by getting involved in that that uh, the issue of sexual sex ed and what what that would look like. That wasn't easy. It wasn't fun. It wasn't. Uh, <laughs> but but those are those are issues that we do need to, to get involved in. And there there are some issues we 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 who sort of led the culture war. Um, failed on that now the church has to deal with you know in michigan uh gay marriage obviously is legal nationally but we now have legal marijuana and we have um i don't know 29 casinos so those are issues that those are things that now become issues that pastors and elders have to deal with because uh, they will have detrimental effects in the congregation jeff if i want to influence my legislator uh, I have an opinion on something and he or she sees things differently. What's the most effective way to do that? I, I've always felt like, you know, they say, call your legislator. And it, it feels like that's just going to be a pointless exercise. I'm going to talk to some staffer who's just going to give me a boilerplate answer and hang up and it's not going to affect anything. 
are, are there some strategies or some things that we should know if we're outside politics and we want to influence our legislators with a, a Christian perspective? Well, obviously, the closer they are to you, the easier it is. So township trustees and city council people are, and county commissioners are easier to build relationships with uh, than a congressman. And you're right, an email to a congressman probably is going to end up being read by a staff. So, but there are opportunities. There, there are office hours that many state legislators would hold. And, and uh, I'm often told by legislators how poorly attended those are. So, so in, you know, certain legislators say, I'm going to be at at a, a coffee shop for an hour and they'll get two or three people. There's a wonderful opportunity to come in and engage on a dialogue, introduce yourself, tell them a little bit about who you are and uh, the issues that are important to you and, and begin that discussion. Uh, if you treat them respectfully, uh, even if you disagree, you'll be surprised at, at the kind of relationship you can build. Um, that the lesson of my being here, and I'm a Republican, I was a Republican, I've been nonpartisan, but you can't get that R tattooed off my forehead. It's, you know, once you're, you're identified that way, you still are. But many of my dearest friends are Democrats, and we disagree on almost every issue. But we've been able to get uh, a dialogue on some issues that we've been able to make progress on. What we did on uh, school finances, I mentioned, uh, when Kevin was a young man was done because of great relationships we had between Republicans and Democrats and could work together. And how do you get people, gets maybe not the right word, because so much of what you're saying, Jeff, is it it's a relationship business. Mm -hmm. And I imagine some people are really good at politics because they know how to schmooze and they know how to glad hand people, but y you want to have real relationships. So how do you walk that fine line? You really want to love people, care for people, even if they disagree with you, but you're also trying to get something done. So how do you, how do you build relationships in an authentic way that doesn't just feel like I'm trying to have a relationship so I can get something from you? Well, I do it um, by, I try and ask myself almost every day, are the conversations I have, are the relationships that I interacted in today, are they pleasing to the Lord? Would, are, do they serve to promote the gospel, even if they weren't a gospel conversation? And I, I think all of us need to ask that question. Did we treat people with respect, uh, even as we disagreed with them? But we, did we stand up for righteousness um, while we're doing that as well? So, so much of it is treating people with respect, listening to them, and caring about them. Um, I always thought uh, lobbying is a lot like building a relationship that you would do if you're trying to share Christ, right? You want to get to know them. You want to understand who they are, what's important to them. And I, that's part of what I do here. I want to know about people's families. I want to know why do they feel so strongly about this or why did they decide to give up what they were doing and come to, to Lansing and work? And that same was true of young staffers. Why'd you decide to be involved in politics or how did you get this job? And as I disagree, it's a, it's a struggle for me because I can be a passionate person. As I disagree with with a legislator who might not see my point of view, I, it, I, I'm trying to be forceful, but also respectful and, and honoring uh, of their position, as I think it's, it's very clear in Romans 13 and First uh, Peter 2 that we are supposed to honor those who are officials in our government. So I try and, and do that in the way that I relate to them as well. Have you ever been tempted at various points to think oh, I'm in the room with really important people, or I have 
I don't know if you had cell phones back then to have the governor on your cell phone. And and what was that like for Carol, who's, you know, as kind and loving as a person can be and doesn't strike me as being a political animal, but probably had to go with you to fancy shindigs and make small talk. And sometimes people paid attention to her and sometimes they overlooked her. How, how did you find that for you and your wife dealing with, quote unquote, important people? It was a, a struggle for my uh, ego and my pride at some point. That's ultimately why I left um, the governor's office. I still loved what I was doing, but uh, I became convinced uh, through prayer and talking to some of my brothers who I held dear that it was becoming too important to me and I needed to let that go. Um, it, it was it was very hard for Carol in some of those instances because she doesn't have a lot of political interest. And there were sometimes, as you said, when people were very kind to her and sometimes when people ignored her we tried to pray before every one of those that that we would be um lights for christ and where we went and what we did uh we are very fortunate to have a group of people who were praying for us uh when i went into the governor's office uh there was an elder in the church who committed to me that he would pray for me on a regular basis that that i would have a strong witness in what i was doing and i uh, I don't think you could overestimate how important that is. And it was never the most important thing to me. What what we were doing at University Reformed Church uh, was always more important. And those were always my friends uh, that, that on weekends I spent time with. I didn't live the political life as many people did. And I think that was that, that was the balance that I needed to have. And that I started every day with scripture, um, that, that I was trying to soak myself in, in the word before I I went into that that job, but but which we ought to do no matter what our job is, right? Yeah, that's really good. Um, just go back to one other thing. You know, part of what makes politics so combustible in this country is we have, for all intents and purposes, a two-party system. It's different in some place like the UK. It's not just the Tories and Labour, but Lib Dems, or they had UKIP. I don't know how there's very much of that around, or Scottish nationalists. And and because the abortion issue, at least my friends in the UK say, it's just not, it's just gone. I mean, it's just, you're you're lucky to find anyone who's going to publicly align with a pro-life position, even though Roe v. Wade gives to the United States much more liberal abortion laws. But just public opinion and the political mood is very different. And so, you know, that's one thing they always say when I go to the UK is it's just, you find people in your, in the churches who align with all sorts of parties and they're not just two of them. And so that makes it very difficult in the United States at times, because it, it feels like every election is a binary choice and you're this team or you're that team, you have that Jersey or that Jersey. So my one punditry question, it, do you think it's ever possible that there's a viable third party or do you see uh, on the other side of Trump, whether it's now or in four years and whether people love it or not, that uh, parties realign and or, or do you think, yeah, for the rest of your lifetime, it's the elephants and the, the donkeys ruling the day? I, I don't I don't pretend to be a great uh, pundit on this, but I, I do believe it's we have a two party system. Uh, you know, if you well, you guys were puppies back then. But in 1988, Ross Perot ran and he spent a lot of money and he got 92. I oh, wasn't 92. I'm sorry. You're, you're right. Right. Uh, 
Yeah. Um, we were puppies, but we were paying attention. Yeah. Well, I was actually at the debate where Ross yeah. Perot was, so I, I should know <laughs> what year that was, but I was raising children and you tend to forget things yeah. when you're raising a bunch of kids, but, um, you know, he spent lots of money and, and really had, um, you know, he got 18% of the vote. Maybe, maybe it wasn't even that high. Um, but, um, so I, I just don't think that that's a possibility going forward. And I do think that parties and things change faster than you think. In 1976, when uh, Jimmy Carter won and the Republicans were in disarray, there was really a thought here that this party, the Republican Party, will be down for a decade. And obviously, you know, the Reagan revolution started four years later. Um, you know, this, this, the same country that elected Barack Obama in 2008, is, it, it's time for change. And there was rejoicing across the country eight years later, elected someone completely opposite. So I, uh, it, any, any prediction that this would be the end of the Republican Party um, is probably premature. But I will tell you, as someone who knows the Republican Party, it's, it's in disarray. And this has been a president who has not valued building party uh, structure as um, most have. So it, it will be interesting to see what happens when his time as the titular head of the party is over. Jeff, I have a quick question for you. Yeah. What would you say to the evangelical person who watches Fox News every night and is kind of invested in um, the ins and outs of daily politics and, you know, the, the latest headline, um, you know, they will vote every election. Uh, they might get into a, a Twitter or a Facebook war with a family member who disagrees, but they don't do anything in terms of local politics. Uh, why do you think that is that we're, we tend to be more interested in national politics than local politics. And we think that, you know, getting on social media or watching the news is political involvement. Would you give any counsel to somebody who operates along those lines? Uh, I, I do think it's important to be involved. It, it's probably easier just to opine. Um, we haven't even talked about social media and what effect that has had, and we, we could spend a whole hour talking about that. Uh, but you can make more of a difference, as I've said before, in local politics. Uh, and as a Christian, I would urge urge folks to do that. Get to know who your local elected folks are. They're, they're interested in, in meeting you, more interested than you'd think, even if they disagree with you, uh, and, and try and build a relationship there. And then pray for your those in government, uh, as scripture tells us to. Pray especially for Christian politicians, uh, that they would take seriously their personal holiness. Uh, these are jobs that are full of temptations, and I've seen too many Christians fall in that. Um, I, I heard you talk on your podcast last week about leaders who have fallen. Uh, it happens uh, too often here as well that uh, people run on an agenda uh, of coming here to, to change things, and they run on their faith, but seemingly when they get here, uh, personal holiness is, is not a priority to them. Uh, so when you're when you're looking at candidates, try and determine that if if they're a Christian, what what's that mean to them, and how does how how does that impact their daily life? 
but also pray for those who are here, that, that they would be faithful. And there are many faithful believers who are in politics. There's a, there's a Bible study here in Lansing of legislators, and I, I know that there is good fellowship and, and study that goes on amongst them. Um, but don't forget local politicians. They're important, and they're going to rise up. And I mean, that, that tends to be the the training grounds where folks who end up in the state house and the state senate and then in congress come from as well last question and then we'll talk about some books or see if you have a last question justin but i imagine jeff that a lot of people who listen to this podcast are uh, probably a number of christian leaders and pastors so let's just think what word would you give to pastors and don't use your your this previous pastor as a good or bad example but what advice would you give to a pastor as he relates and leads his congregation and relates to politics? G- give us both some good and bad. What would you hope a pastor wouldn't do under this whole topic in leading a flock? And what do you hope he would do? Well, I'd hope, uh, as my dear pastor Kevin DeYoung taught me in his 13 years here, that we always look to the scriptures that's where our answer comes from. Um, there, there has been, I think Justin alluded to it earlier, there has been uh, at least a strain of Christianity where there is a connection between being a Christian means being an American and being a Republican. And I don't, I don't think that does us or the gospel any service. So preach the gospel um, and talk about what the gospel says about how we are to act as citizens in a, in a democracy. There are issues where I, I do believe pastors do need to speak. Abortion would be one of those where you need to not be afraid to speak. Um, but, but don't swerve off your course of preaching what the Lord has called and put on your heart to preach or the book that you're preaching through to, to go into a, a special area uh, that you think needs to be be uh, addressed at that point. And I would certainly hope that they would not get into to partisanship and um, that that can be very dangerous and divisive. And it is our hope that many would come to know Christ as their Lord. And, and I pray frequently that many of those will be Democrats, that the Lord will work and, and bring revival among um, his church. And many of the folks who come in the door will be people who, who are Democrats. Yeah. I mean, that that's really good. And I try to, I mean, as someone who's interested, I feel like it's a blessing and a curse to be interested. Sometimes I, I uh, envy my brothers in ministry who don't pay any attention to social media, don't, don't you know, they're going to vote, or, but they just, they're not into it. And I think that seems sometimes healthier and simpler. Of course, we've been talking about that's not always the answer. So I feel like Sometimes I wish I weren't as interested, but you know I have been for a long time, and so I think of that sort of word, Jeff, and and I think any pastor listening out there, I think you, put myself here, need to examine your own heart. Is right now compared to politics, compared to this coming election, is the gospel more interesting, more important, more eternal? All three of those, because pastors are going to say, of course, it's more eternal. In a cosmic sense, more important. So maybe even the first one, is it more interesting to you? Uh, we don't want pastors getting kind of bored with Christology, soteriology, exegesis, and other expositional sermon. What I'm really into this week 
is what's going on in the political sphere. That's a danger, and it does not serve a local congregation when a pastor, uh, you know, be interested in it, be be informed. But the most important thing you need to do this week is to feed the flock with the Word of God, and you need to find your soul happy in Jesus and communicate that. Justin, any last question before we just wrap up with a few books? No, ready to move on to the books. No, no particular category, but uh, Justin and Jeff, if you have anything, just this is life and books and everything. We've done life and everything. So here are some books. So I just grabbed a few that I've finished recently. I don't know why I'm holding them up because uh, you can see it, but our listeners can't. Conrad and Bayway is a new book, God's Design for the Church, published by Crossway, a guide for African pastors and ministry leaders. I did a, a blurb for that. I see Justin it didn't make the back. Mark Devers did, but oh well. It's a very good book. And even though it says a guide for African pastors, it any pastor can benefit from this. And Conrad is one of my favorite preachers, and he's a delightful person. We had him at our church to preach. Was that this year? It seems like a lifetime ago that people were coming from other continents to to visit and uh, had him over for dinner. And I'm, I'm excited for this book. Uh, another book that's been getting some attention, published by Princeton Press, it's called Lost in Thought, The Hidden Pleasures of an Intellectual Life by Zena Hitz. Have you seen this, Justin? It's a very, so. it's a very good book. Uh, it's It's well-written. She tells a lot of her personal story in the beginning, and then the rest kind of moves through literature and philosophy. And it's, I mean, it's part an uh, in, in understanding of why the academic life matters. But more than that, it's it's not just really for academics. It's about the value in thinking and the life of the mind, and that it's not just for academics. In fact, it's better when it's for all sorts of people and to find beauty and pleasure in it. She's uh, writing from a, a sort of a Catholic perspective comes through at times. And let me mention two other books. Matthew Thiessen has a book that Baker published, Jesus and the Forces of Death, the Gospel's Portrayal of Ritual Impurity Within First Century Judaism. Uh, really fascinating book. I, I don't think I agree with every last argument in it, but the basic argument is we have too quickly dismissed Jesus' encounters with ritual impurity and have made him out to be like one of us and just didn't really care about that Jewish category. When he goes through case after case, leprosy, death, um, sacred time, and he shows how this category of ritual impurity was hugely important in first century Judaism and far from Jesus just saying, you know, we don't care about that anymore. He actually presented himself as the one who healed those impurities and was a kind of healing contagion such that if the woman with the bloody issue even touched him, his force of healing was stronger than her power of ritual pollution. And it, it's, it's a quick read for an academic book, and I, I found it provocative. And then last book uh, by Ronald Bailey and Marion T-U-P-Y, Tuppy, 10 Global Trends Every Smart Person Should Know and Many Others You Will Find Interesting. Uh, it's of the genre of factfulness, which came out a couple of years ago. 
Uh, it's kind of a coffee table book. I wish it was a little bigger in its actual physical size because the print can be hard to read, but it actually doesn't have 10 global trends. That's uh, just a, a seller for the book. It has, I think, 78. Uh, I mentioned several of them actually came up in my sermon this week as I was preaching on Genesis 4 about the culture of Cain and how we see in the line of Cain great cultural and civilizational accomplishment by God's common grace, but ultimately it's empty without true worship. And so I was I use some of these trends to show and remind us that in the midst of a constant barrage of bad news, we can feel like we must live in the worst possible times when actually objectively we live in the the most prosperous, healthiest, uh, most profitable, advanced time by far. And so this book has all sorts of statistics about income and how literacy in 1820, global literacy was 10%. Now it's 90%. How those living in extreme poverty 200 years ago was uh, 84% of the population. Now it's under 10%. How global wealth per GD, uh, per capita if you plotted it on a line from the time of Christ to a, to the 19th century, it would be almost a completely flat line. And then in the last 150 years, almost a straight hockey stick going up. That's, that's how much wealth has been created in the world. So it's a, it's a fascinating book. You can put it on your coffee table and flip through and convince people that you're one of the smart persons who knows these trends. One of the fun things about Rosling's book is that he developed a survey, the Factfulness book, mm-hmm. in which he would have a, a group of monkeys press buttons to try to determine the answers. And then he would compare that to various demographics <laughs> of people taking the same quiz. So the monkeys actually did about as as well or maybe even better than journalists when you ask them about the global poverty rate and you know, how really? many uh, young girls are... Uh, not being educated these days. So even if you're a journalist and should be in the know, you might not do better than a monkey in terms of those global uh, uh, trends. So, so Justin, any uh, books you've been into lately that you want to mention? Yeah. I Next time, let's let me go first and then you can go afterwards because it, you always see him like somebody seems like they don't read anything following Kevin DeYoung who reads a book a day, it seems. Uh, but two that are on my uh, proverbial nightstand. One I just received this weekend. Um, O. Carter Sneed, who is at Notre Dame, what it means to be human, the case for the body in public bioethics. Hmm. Um, Roman Catholic author, obviously, but he's making the argument that public policy in terms of bioethics has a lot to do with uh, your definition of of who a human being is. And if you have uh, the assumption of expressive individualism, that what really matters is your freedom and your authenticity and uh, treating the human being as a disembodied will where where will and expression are everything. It has profound effects on what we think about abortion and on euthanasia and other things. Um, and so he's arguing that uh, we are embodied people and there's natural limits to the human body and that makes us vulnerable and it makes us dependent upon other human beings. And um, I'm just, you know, the introduction, the first chapter into it, but mm, it really looks good. like a, a really uh, strong book. Mm-hmm. Other one, uh, quite different, just listening to it on Audible, is by Thomas Chatterton Williams. I think it came out last year. Self-Portrait in Black and White, Family, Fatherhood, and Rethinking Race. And uh, Williams is an American who lives in France, 
uh, married a, a woman from Paris. His father is African-American and his mother is Caucasian. Several years ago, he wrote a piece for New York Times op-ed or New Yorker, I can't remember which, saying that when he has his own child, he will consider that child, no matter what it looks like, to be African-American. Uh, then he had his first child, who is blonde-haired, curly blonde hair, bright blue eyes, um, white skin. And just the, the whole thing is sort of a memoir of reflections on himself as a father, his own family, and arguing that the idea of kind of strict racial categorization just does not make sense in the modern world. So uh, fretting from a liberal perspective, but I think also challenging a lot of uh, popular conceptions on race. So um, halfway through that and finding it uh, interesting and provocative and uh, as somebody who all of my my wife and our children are adopted and uh, a mixture of various races, it's interesting to think about mm -hmm. what it means uh, for race in the modern world. He's a very thoughtful, reflective reader and writer. And so, yeah, I like him. I haven't read that yet. Jeff, any books, um, well, devotional I, books, politics books, anything you're reading that you think would be worth mentioning? I, I was uh, challenged by a previous pastor of mine to have uh, dear dead friends that you read. Yeah. Uh, you worded it better than that, Kevin. But so uh, I've always been a fan of Andrew Murray, and I am reading through his uh, Absolute Surrender right now, uh, which is a challenging, last night it was that concept of dying to self. So I'm trying to think through that, but also reading lots of novels and other fun things too. Good. Jeff, thank you so much for taking time thank out you. of all your political machinations to be with us. You're one of the the good guys and one of my dear friends. So thank you for being here with us. And Justin, glad that you could get to meet Jeff and vice versa. Uh, Jeff, you may not know that Justin is a Big Ten fan, a uh, Nebraska Cornhusker, who uh, unfortunately- for all of us. Yeah, play Ohio State. Ohio State, yeah. At noon, I saw, yes. It's big. Yeah, it, yeah, it yeah and then, then Wisconsin after that. So the Big Ten is- uh, putting it to Nebraska for yeah, they're punishing. You know. uh, we Nebraska. have Kevin and I are Michigan State fans, and so we start with Rutgers, which was a is a hopefully a nice gift uh, softball for our new coach. But then we have Michigan right away too. So, but it is exciting in the midst of all this to have some normalcy with with Big Ten football starting. Yeah, the third game of the season we play the '85 Bears. So um. <laughs> nice, very good. All right. Well, thank you, men, and uh, look forward to having Colin back next week. And I believe we have another guest to talk about his book, and we'll you know, have to come back to find out who that is. So until then, glorify God and enjoy him forever and read a good book. Mm -hmm.